I'm Denise. She's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise. She's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Editing Podcast. So this week, Denise are delighted to be joined by our pal Andy Hodges again. Hello. Yeah, we, we are. <laughs> Hello, Andy. Yeah. So if you didn't catch Andy in the episode on world building, which is episode uh, 115. He's the owner of The Narrative Craft, which is an editorial business offering developmental editing, line editing and coaching to fiction authors and creative scholars. That's right. And another one of Andy's specialisms is editing translated materials, which requires a special level of artistry, I think, and sensitivity. Mm-hmm. So that's what we asked him to come back and chat about. So, Andy. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Welcome. Hello again. Hello. <laughs> so, Andy, can you start by telling us um, what kinds of translated materials that you edit? So uh, I edit novels and short stories, and occasionally I'll do a cultural anthropology text. So that would be like humanities and social sciences. And I used to do a lot more of that a few years ago because I started out as an academic editor and then I pivoted to fiction. Yeah, that's because right. you were talking in the world building thing about your your academic history. And we found that really interesting from the world building perspective. But of course, you know, it, it makes sense from from this as well. Absolutely. So, um, Andy, what would you say is the difference between editing a translation and editing a text written in English by a multilingual author? Oh, that's a complex question. So <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I would say that, first of all, if you're editing a translation, that usually means there is a formal, this is a formal translation and you have a source text somewhere written in another language. Uh, If you're editing a text written in English by a multilingual author, that could be kind of from scratch. So there probably isn't a source text in another language, but that kind of text would still be perhaps an informal translation, depending on the the language background. So there are lots of similarities there. Yeah. Yeah. So, So do you mean then that somebody who is writing in English which isn't their first language. When you say that's an informal translation, do you mean that they're sort of translating it in their head as they go along or that they've maybe written it in their own language and then translated it themselves? So that really depends on their language background mm-hmm. and how their engagement with English. So if they're living in an English-speaking country, and I can speak from experience because I've been on the other side of that, living mm-hmm. in Croatia and learning Croatian, there comes a point when you do kind of you start to think in another language and the idioms and all the different phrasings and things start to feel really natural so mm-hmm. but that's a point that some pe- some authors reach and some don't so it really right. depends on their background really yeah uh, yeah yeah do you I think it's important to know that sorry sorry Louise right. do you think it's important to know their language background before you start working on it or does it not really make a difference to how you approach the text I think it is important to know the language background because the kinds of mistakes they will make uh, Mm. can depend on that background. So Mm. I'll give you a quick example here, but um, in French and in Croatian, uh, the word uh, syndicat means trade union, but it, and they might do a literal translation of that and write in English, the syndicates. 
And that could be confusing yeah. if you didn't know, oh, that, yeah. they're coming from French or Croatian. Yeah. yeah. So it's like those, those um, false friends really, aren't they, in, in language exactly. translation? Yeah. 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 That's all about false friends. Yeah. Andy, how long did you um, live in Croatia for? Uh, 10 years altogether from oh, wow. two, 2008 to 2018. Oh, okay. Wow. So what, what level of proficiency did you get to in Croatian, if you don't mind my asking? Uh, I did all of those European exams and I got to the top mm. level, which is C2. C2. And I, ah, yeah. Right. And I took my translation exams over there as well. So, yeah, I really, you, really you're very proficient. Yeah, you're yeah. very proficient. If you're C2 level, that's that's really impressive. That must yeah. have really, I mean, it's interesting because you said just before, oh, I've been on the other side of the fence. And so having mm-hmm. experienced that, what it is to learn in another language and be, and and actively go uh, as far as testing your proficiency and being sort of assessed on it um, uh, mm-hmm. over over a decade, um, that must be really useful um, when you're in 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 a, doing an edit for somebody where where that kind of understanding and um oh, kind of empathy exactly yeah no there's a lot of empathy there because i know what it feels like to be in that position yeah so, and that's yeah. incredible that's incredibly helpful when collaborating and building relationships with authors yeah. and i also know what it feels like for somebody to take a text i've written in croatian and make it look much better so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I've yeah, worked that... with. Sorry, no, go, go on, ahead, no, Denise. Go on. I was just no, going to say, on. I've I've worked with a, a, a an author in the past year whose um, English is excellent, but there mm. were just thinking about some of those things you were talking about, Andy, in terms of understanding the sort of little snafus that uh, that your your you 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 come to recognise. And what I noticed mm. that this author tended to struggle with prepositions. The sort of natural sounding prepositions that we might choose about, you know, the difference between walking on a street or along as opposed to along a street. And yeah. just those things that as a, as a someone who was born speaking English and who, well, English is really only my first language in terms of proficiency. Um it's something that I, I can't even necessarily articulate the reasons behind it. I just know that that's kind of the natural, I know what sounds natural. And mm. and those are the things that this author struggled with. So even though I would say that their English is um, excellent, I mean, it's just excellent. Their written and spoken English is excellent. And yet there are these little things which sort of give the game away in a sense that it's not their first language. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And for me, I, I find that editing translated materials or and editing for multilingual authors it's on a spectrum and at one end you've got a complete rewrite where you're reconstructing a style and a voice mm. and then most of the time it's what I'd call line editing or stylistic editing where you're refining uh, the style and the voice and then it's at the other end of the spectrum you've got light copy editing but I find with the, that light copy editing it's just the kind of mistakes that those authors make are subtly different to the ones that speakers with a first uh, an L1 English background. So if English mm-hmm. is their first language would make. Mm. Yeah. You bet you've preempted my question there, Andy, because I was going to ask you whether you would call it stylistic line editing or technical copy editing. So you're saying it's really a spectrum just depending on what what the text needs and the sort of errors that you're coming up against. Because that was a very interesting 
conversation that took place in one of our editing forums recently, wasn't yeah. it? Um, do you want to expand a little bit on that about the sort of stylistic side of, I'm thinking particularly of your translated materials, what sort of things you would focus on when you're doing that? Yeah, so I'll reiterate, I think the level of intervention really depends. And then mm. it's what you call it. So when I first started, that would be nearly 10 years ago, I didn't have any formal copy editing training at that point, mm. but I was hired by authors in Croatia who were other acad other academics, and they just were saying to me, I want this text to look like uh, a L1 English speaker, a proficient English speaker has written it. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. in those situations, the kind of changes that I'm making uh, are stylistic. So I'm making the style look more like an English academic style. And mm -hmm. just for comparison, so academic style in Croatian is very formal compared to English. English uses a lot more verbs, a lot less nominalizations and very mm -hmm. formal constructions. So I'd be making those kind of changes. And yeah. that would help them when they're submitting their journal article to an Anglo-American journal. But it wouldn't be professional copy editing at that point. There was, I wouldn't have changed, for example, I didn't have perfected. I wouldn't have corrected the uh, I, ISE and IZE and all uh -huh. of that, that, that kind of thing. So M dashes think, and N dashes and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All of that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh -huh. So it, it definitely would have needed another level, another round right. of copy editing yeah. after that. And it was only when I went full-time professional that I really got all of that training. And I think I was able to offer that sort of stylistic help and uh, co traditional copy editing too. And I also think I now do that stylistic stuff much better because I've been trained in precisely what level of intervention is appropriate. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. like it, in the early days, I think I was probably imposing my ideas about certain words and style yeah. too much, yeah. which I think is really yeah. common among Absolutely. Editors. Yeah, I think we get carried away with our own ability, really, sometimes in, in the early stages. It's, it's learning to rein that in a little bit, isn't it? Exactly. And yeah. it is that thing. I think that's I mean, we've had conversations about this before, not in relation to this specific topic of this episode, but just more generally that idea that um, when people say, oh, but I, I, uh, I only work with independent authors on fiction, therefore I don't need any formal proofreading or copy, mm. copy editing foundational training and actually sometimes learning the 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 that baseline stuff even if you mm. end up decide at least you can make a decision no, I'm not going to apply that here because mm. but at mm -hmm. least you know what it is that you've decided not to apply or yeah. or that you've decided to bend or or or, or you know just shift away from ever so slightly you know you, you you can make make much more informed decisions and then mm. communicate those decisions as well not just to other not just your clients but to other editors if you're if you're you know if there are other yeah. editors involved in a project so it's it's interesting that how you found that doing technical foundation training actually made you a better stylistic yeah uh, and absolutely. creative editor as well yeah and it I gives was... you more, more confidence as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Knowing I... that... Sorry, you... carry on. I keep yeah, pressing yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> no, knowing that you've been through that process, you know mm. the rules so you can choose to break them with exactly. inten that, that intentionality. Intentional. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, Andy, when you do, when you do uh, an edit of a translated text, 
do you combine your stylistic and your copy editing um, or does it again does that depend or would you keep them entirely separate on some occasions is that it depends yeah on yeah no, yeah it, it depends on the level of intervention needed but for mm -hmm. most jobs I will do a, what I call a main edit so that would be the main pass and then mm -hmm. I'll do a final read through as well where I'm really just catching any remaining typos and things like that yeah yeah, yeah. so well, like it's a quality control check kind of yeah yeah mm -hmm. so and I will say to them I mean often there will be another editor who will look at it later on in the process anyway so mm. but I but I just think if you're if you're making lots of interventions and it can be handy just to have that final read through so, you know I so agree with that because I think especially when you're doing quite heavy stylistic editing um it's easy to it's so easy I know from my own experience to introduce errors and yeah. Um, oh, yeah. typographical mm -hmm. errors. And what I often do is I don't do a I don't do necessarily a second pass as such, but um I, I'll do it on a, a chapter by chapter basis. So I'll line edit a chapter and then I'll go back and, and just read through it just to, oh. to see where I've um I, I think because the reason I do it like that is just because for me, by the time I get to the end of a project, I've I've kind of got closure in mind. And I think if I had to if mm. if I had to go back to the beginning and do a full read read the whole I, thing again yeah, yeah for me that would be yeah. uh, um it, it it just doesn't kind of I haven't got the mindset for that so it's just mm -hmm. I'm doing what you're doing Andy I'm just doing it in mm, a different in way in a different way and I think it's a bit different so with a journal article it wouldn't be a mammoth task no, no exactly but if, yeah, yeah, but yeah. if you've got a novel in front of yeah. you then I yeah. know myself a, it can take one day one and a half days yeah. to do that final read or a short story so, again that's yeah, something that story. you could do or, or you know that I, I would definitely I, I I would follow your yeah your, your line on that. yeah so Andy um I mean how did you get into this do you do you translate as well or do you just edit translative materials okay so when I started around 10 years ago I just started receiving requests from my academic network and some of them were for translation some of them were for editing so I gave translation a go I trained in, in literary translation too uh, but I, I just prefer editing because with translation you can roughly do about 2000 words a day and that's comfortably and well some people wow. will do more than that it's whereas not a with, lot, is it, it's not a lot no mm -hmm. whereas with a heavy style edit i usually do between six and eight thousand words yeah. so mm -hmm. just covering yeah. a lot more ground basically mm -hmm. and yeah. that fe that feels good because it it feels like you've got a bit more of a not a bird's eye perspective but a more of a distance perspective and you can i just enjoy it more yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes perfect sense. I think I think it, it's often the case with different types of editing, isn't it? Or, or language um, support. Mm. It, it very much depends on the person's mindset. And, and, you know, for some people that kind of really, really kind of slow, measured um, 2000 words a day kind of thing that might suit someone really yeah. well but yeah uh, and it might suit someone for example who only has 2000 uh, any house uh, has um who want who likes working over a, a single project over an extended period of time and mm -hmm. um but mm. for, for others it's just it's just just how you're wired yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's exactly. like it's like, do you, do you like the quick sort of quickish turnover of things or do you like to be immersed and stuff? That's like when I, it's, it's completely different, but when I was a physio, I liked the quick turnover work 
turnover of working in A&E and working in fracture clinic where I knew things were going to get better relatively quickly rather than working in rehab where you might be working with a client, a patient for months, you know, um, who's maybe Mm. had a a stroke or a brain injury or something. And I wasn't, that's not, wasn't my good fit. So I can see how the same thing works with language work as well, that, you know, some people are just better designed to do certain types um, of sort of subsections of work within that. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, if you're translating, you might only need three or four books a year, maybe even less than that. Mm -hmm. And then you don't, you might not have to do much marketing at all, which suits some people. Exactly. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. So it's really, yeah. Horses for courses. Yeah. Just as well that we don't all like the same thing really, isn't (laughs) it? (laughs) Absolutely. So Andy, you've mentioned that you, you know, your language um, skills are with Croatian. And I think you know a couple of other of those sort of Balkan languages as well don't you a little bit um Uh, but yeah yeah a little bit um but what I wanted to know is do do you do you need to be familiar with the writer's first language to work well on translated materials or so are you equally happy working on something that has been translated from a completely different language to Croatian for example Okay. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I think the answer is actually quite subtle. So <laughs> if you're doing nonfiction, many kinds of nonfiction, and I know Catherine omar Klopf has talked about this, um, she's argued that you don't need to know the first language, you can simply raise more author queries. And I agree with that. I think that's absolutely fine for nonfiction. Um, mm. It might be a little bit easier for you, for sure, if you know that um, that source language, that that other language, and you might be m- more tuned into the kind of mistakes that could be made. But I wouldn't say it's necessary. Now, right. with fiction, what I think is important is if you're translating from a different literary tradition, then I think it's important to be familiar with that tradition and to know how much the author wants it adapted or not to Anglo-American publishing norms. So oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Can you sense. give us an example of that, Andy? Could, yeah, could no. You, um, yeah? So one of the examples that's often talked about is that uh, there's a there's a I'm not sure what it's called, but there's a style of uh, there's a genre or a style of writing in Japan that de-emphasizes conflict, whereas in Western literary traditions, conflict is often heavily emphasized or even mm. seen as fundamental yeah, yeah, like yeah every yeah. every story needs conflict i think it's called kisho tenketsu but i'm not not sure how to pronounce that I, we can put a link in the chat yeah yeah um so that's one example where you if you're editing that story from an anglo-american perspective you might be like where's the action what's happening right. you might want to make lots of interventions and give lots of suggestions that aren't particularly culturally sensitive uh and that's the, almost like a, a, a developmental editing level then isn't it rather, it rather it's, it's sort of bigger than exactly line level style work it's um it's sort of but the, I very, suppose the that very would... bones of the of the of the novel and I suppose then it would, would it depend on whether the translation was the focus of the translation was in preserving that or adapting mm. it to an Anglo-American audience because that yeah. would be a that's a rewrite then, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so translation yeah. 
is often described as a paraphrasing or a rewriting in another language mm-hmm. so but then it's how far you go with that and how close yeah. you stick to the source text and what's interesting is that authority is often important here as well so a new author a young new author looking for a publishing deal in the anglo-american world is likely to be much more open to having the style for instance adapted to meet those norms right than uh, somebody who has published very, somebody very senior who's published lots of novels um, mm-hmm. who they, they might be a lot less uh, open to having their style changed and things like that yeah 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 because I mean that's um, for many authors the kind of style they choose to write and the literary style they choose is it's it's sort of it, it's sort of soul deep, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. you know, not not always, mm-hmm. but um, it can be sort of. I can imagine some people thinking, "Oh no, 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 hands <laughs> off, hands off my style." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Andy, what when you're um editing translated materials, are there particular general issues that that you tend to find might come up? Just thinking yes. about people who are thinking of 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 expanding um into into this kind of work particularly if they've got a a, a, another language that they're proficient in and as as referencing there your discussion about the source language um Mm -hmm. yeah um what 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 kind of things do you think people should look out what think about okay so we've already touched on false friends uh (laughs) besides that among advanced people with a lot of translation experience terminology is often something that is wrongly or they they make the wrong choices when they're when they're translating a text or it's not done in a very consistent way now that's not often quite so important for fiction as for say medical editing Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) 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 Um, but there are lots of other kinds of errors to look out for when editing translated materials. So register errors, that often comes up uh, mm. where, for example, in a very formal academic text, I might see a phrase like, and then they did a runner or something like that. Yeah, colloquialisms that we just don't um, normally expect to see in formal writing. Exactly. And that's a process because I know when I went to live in Croatia, I would be learning that register as well as the more formal ones. And sometimes I'd mix them up and people would yeah. laugh at me. And it's quite funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the thing, though, okay. I suppose when you're own, when you're speaking in your first language, your own or a language that or, or languages that you're you're really proficient in, you register comes quite naturally. But mm-hmm. when you're learning a, a language, it, and, you know, to, I mean, to us, to all of us speaking here today, doing a runner, it's so obviously colloquial. But when you're learning vocabulary, mm-hmm. it, you can't necessarily, because you don't necessarily, you're not at the level where you're thinking, that you're thinking mm-hmm. in, in terms of the sort of beyond the words, beyond the vocabulary, in terms of meaning. It, it's not immediately obvious. So I can see how it would be easy to 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 mix up a, a a phrase because you're still learning the the sort of the essence of the language the soul of it exactly it's like you're filling in a jigsaw puzzle you're putting yeah. these words in registers on a daily basis and yeah. that takes a long time yeah. so. and language learners love to learn colloquialisms i mean they because yeah. it integrates it integrates you into the language and it and it just makes you feel that you're 
um, you know, you're you're part of it more, doesn't it? When you're using these, you know, idioms, mm. idi idiomatic things and colloquialisms, but it's that whole thing about register, isn't it? There's a time and a place for everything. Exactly. <laughs> that can be the difficult one, yeah. Yeah. And then other errors that are quite common are readability ones. So syntax mm -hmm. errors, that's incredibly common. Mm. Um, and pro issues with voice and style. And that's something that I would say the humanities and social sciences have in common with fiction is a, a concern with voice and style that they're really important for both of those fields. Mm. Yeah. So. yeah. So that's that's a really interesting, Andy. There's quite sort of general issues that like sort of broad stroke things to look out for. But are there any specific challenges that working with translated literary or, um, or fictional texts that, that that come along with it that perhaps if if you're an editor that doesn't generally work on these things, mm. you wouldn't perhaps have at the front of your mind. Yeah. So the kind of the developmental fiction literature on POV uh, mm -hmm. and issues like, for instance, head hopping, that's uh -huh. where you're writing in a third person limited or you kind of close up POV, not far mm -hmm. away and omniscient, and you jump perspective from one uh, viewpoint character to another without giving the reader much, much information. Mm -hmm. You could say they get whiplash from it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Head hopping is very much out of fashion in Anglo-American commercial publishing, but it, I've noticed that it's quite common in other, like in, I have some uh, clients from Germany and also from Croatia. And it seems that also when I read, I read Croatian novels from time to time and I do see it there more often. So. That's interesting. Yeah. See, so, I would, see I, I'm not a fiction editor and I just, all I know about all that stuff is that head hopping is generally a no-no. But So that's interesting that you say that that's not the case in Croatian and German, or you're seeing it as being more acceptable there than in yeah. sort of Anglo-American. And it might well be literature. because in those languages, the way those languages work syntactically, um, that, that it, for some reason, uh, I mean, I don't speak them, but that they lend themselves... <sighs> more readily to 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 that jumping mm. of, of that close psychic distance in a way that that just that we've we've come to uh, expect not to see in in anglo-american publishing and uh, well uh, commercial fiction anyway um and I, I am sort of now starting to wonder i you know if i spoke another language and I understood that language and I got that language, whether it would it would feel different somehow if I came across these multiple instances of that close psychic distance and that that whiplash of bouncing from one head to another, whether it, it, it might somehow work. I mean, Andy, have you read Croatian novels where you've seen this happening, uh, like pu commercially published? Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 so, how did it make you feel? Did you did you did did it not bother you in, a, in a, or, or did, were you kind of more, uh, I don't know, tolerant of it? Yeah, I've not read novels where it's been uh, what I'd call a major major problem. So I've I've seen novels where it's been at the minor to moderate sort of level of mm. causing problems in the text. Um, yeah, that's a really difficult question because mm -hmm. I read a lot of those 
novels before I trained as a fiction editor and yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you and fiction editing is all about learning to notice yeah, yeah notice yeah. particular kinds of things so uh the novels that I've worked on over the past year I've seen little bits of that but nothing nothing major it's more that whenever I speak to authors about this I've I've noticed there's that we there's usually a discussion about the rules being a bit stricter in the Anglo-American publishing wow. and that's not just about head hopping I've noticed it with differences in first person POVs as well so sometimes uh, they'll mix a kind of an embedded one with a looking back a retrospective one um, all these kind of big structural issues it feels like there's a it's a bit it can often be a bit more rough and ready in some of those yeah. other European literary traditions okay. yeah. so um, and another one more issue is that mm-hmm. the, the whole convention around unusual dialogue tags being a no-no in Anglo-American commercial publishing so stick to they say stick to said asked replied but 95% of the time and yeah. show it through dialogue instead of no gafford yeah yeah no gafford and all of that Pleased. <laughs> yeah and I think that's actually I have a theory about this I think it's a bit of an arbitrary convention and that it's quite handy for literary agents to have something where they can say oh we know who's workshopped their work and uh had other writers and uh, people into fiction and fiction editing look at it um a kind of a way of filtering things yeah exactly yeah. That, this is my theory I, I don't know yeah. if it's true I, and I say it because I know that a lot of beginner authors do make mm. this mistake, uh, including people whose first language background is English. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. This isn't something mm. specific, but for translated stuff, it's much more okay to use different different dialogue tags in, say, Croatian and in German. Uh, right. Yeah. And it's what about so- these things about, about body parts moving independently? Do they have that sort of thing as well? You know, like eyes rolling around the room and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. that's <laughs> still the same in translated materials. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know about that one because I've not sat down with an author and said, "Oh, in German, <laughs> is this sentence okay?" But I have brought it up once or twice when mm-hmm. I've had a, a translated text. But then again, it comes up with uh, first language English. Absolutely, speakers. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, no, that's that's one for my that's one for me to investigate in the future. <laughs> yeah, Check that out. It, it is interesting though, that isn't it? That 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 in terms of the fashion, the fashion of writing. So there's a kind of Mm. formula that works in Anglo-American publishing in terms of, say, thrillers, for example, Mm -hmm. where there are certain things that we know work and we know sell and and a lot of us reading them and, and, and maybe people who are editors, those of us who are editors as well, have sort of taken time to think about why it works. And, Mm. but certainly if you sort of go back a a hundred years or so you see different fashions and um different Mm. uh so now it's it's quite unusual in 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 contemporary um commercial fiction like a say a thriller or something to see somebody using an omniscient viewpoint whereas um omniscient was really common um in the victorian age and um and lots of people wrote like that but then people weren't writing like harlan coburn then or or um mm-hmm. you know or raymond yeah. chandler or, or whatever so it's just it's 
it's like everything. It's like the clothes we wear and the and, and the the our accents and our, our the actual words in our language. It just changes over time. And um, but it's it, it's quite interesting that it's it's very easy to sit within a bubble and and, and think of mm. of the stuff that we. I think that's what fascinates me is that uh, that I've definitely sit within a bubble of of English language materials written on the whole by um people whose first language is, is English or who 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 have English as one of a couple of of of, of first languages mm-hmm. and um actually when you start working on translated materials you're you know you have got a much uh, broader kind of sense of of this glimpse into into traditions and ways of doing things that that perhaps are different and 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 it's mm-hmm. it's good for editors to remember that publishing doesn't mean english language publishing you know that it's yeah. the whole world of, of 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 creatives out there um doing I, th- I think it's so good for people to know that you know we tend to be so sort of Eurocentric, don't we, or certainly yeah. Western centric. And just mm-hmm. to realise that there are different conventions out there and different approaches. That that whole thing about the no conflict in you know in Japanese writing I, as being a genre, I was never aware of that. You know, editors listening to this might think, "Oh, I want to go and learn about that." You know, it's I think yeah. it's really good for us yeah. to um, open our minds a little bit and and learn from editors like yourself Andy who've mm-hmm. got these skills and these experiences and think about how we can apply listening to you to how we work with our clients whether or not their English is their first language or their third language yeah so yeah no. it's, yeah, yeah it's been really really good and I think we could probably talk about this forever but that's um, what happens when Hodges yeah, talks on the podcast exactly <laughs> the hodgepodge um <laughs> So yeah, that's it. Thanks, Andy. That's been brilliant. And I think we can draw it to a close for this week. So thank you so much to our listeners. Yeah, thank you for coming on and talking to us. You're so welcome. We'll definitely have you back again. So um, editing podcast listeners, thank you so much for listening again. If you'd like to help support us, we've got a couple of options for you. And the first is that you can tip us a one-off donation of your choosing. And the link to that is in the show notes. Yeah. yeah, Louise, do you want to say something? Sorry, <laughs> I thought you were going to the link. No, but you have You're to not. say not to say that because it's absolutely ridiculously long and it sounds stupid. So. <laughs> and now I feel bad because I'm going to mention it's a shorter link. It anyway, is a shorter one. Yeah. Anyway, listeners, or you can join our Patreon community for only three pounds a month at. And here it is, the link, patreon.com <laughs> forward slash editing podcast, because I'm not scared of a, a URL. All our patrons get exclusive access to a huge batch of transcripts. You're not going to edit this out, are you? No, I'm going to leave no. all this in just yeah. so people can see how cheeky you are to me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, both the links are in the show notes and we'll put in a link to um, the thing that Andy mentioned about the Japanese genre thing. Yep. Uh, in the meantime, she's been Louise, the cheeky one. <laughs> she's been Denise, the lazy one. And he's been Andy, the marvellous one. Join us again soon. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.